All right. Well, let me say a very, uh, very happy Thanksgiving to you all. It is good to be here uh, with you. I hope you are uh, excited to eat some turkey, to have a good time. Uh, as we move into our sermon, let me invite you to grab your Bibles. And uh, I haven't said this for a little while, but if you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have Bibles at the back at our Welcome Center. You're always free to, to go grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take it with you. It, we would love to provide you with one, our gift to you, uh, just a way to, to help you in your spiritual journey and also help you kind of follow along with what we're going to do here uh, this morning. We are going to be looking at the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12 is uh, where we're going to be, so if you have a Bible, you can find your way there. And uh, as, you're, as you're working your way over to Acts chapter 12, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with a group called the Innocence Project. I actually would assume many of you probably actually have heard of this group before. Uh, it's an organization that uses uh, DNA technology to help exonerate prisoners who've been wrongfully incarcerated before DNA technology was a thing. So they, they go back through some of these cold cases, people who've been in jail for a long time, and use DNA technology and either, well, confirm you know, that they got the right person, or actually to exonerate someone who was wrongfully put in prison. In fact, if you go to their website, you can see actually the average time that a person that they've been able to help has spent in prison is 14 years. 14 years in prison for a crime they hadn't committed. Many were serving life sentences or even on death row. I mean, I don't know about you, but that kind of an idea that you could spend that long, even, even awaiting execution, and this is down in the States, obviously, but it's a bit unnerving to think, okay, actually, they got the wrong person. It's unnerving to think about. There's something visceral in, the, in you that just says that's, that's, that shouldn't be the case. That's not right. Right? And it's, it leads to a lot of other questions. Well, what about people who've already passed away? Right? Who, who did serve, you know, a, a full sentence, a life sentence, who did actually sit on death row, and they weren't exonerated. Or what about, well, what about the people who actually got away with it? Right, the people who actually were guilty of these crimes, where are they? What have they been doing for 14 plus years? Right? We all know our justice system isn't perfect, even at the very best of times, but it leads us to that question, well, well where is justice? I mean, are, is this really all we have? Shouldn't God do something? We talk about God being a God of, of justice. Shouldn't he do something about all of this? And really this morning as we look at our passage, we're getting, we're getting a small picture to that answer. It's not the whole thing. We're, we're not going to be able to talk about every part of that, but we're given a small snapshot into what God is going to do and what he is actually doing. Right? We're going to pick up our, our story here in the book of Acts in chapter 12 right after last week. If you were here with us, you'll know we talked about Peter being in prison and him actually escaping out of prison. Okay, So this was during the time of Herod Agrippa. He was a tyrant. He was ruler over Judea. And, and at one point, he just simply had enough. For whatever reason, he decided to arrest a bunch of Christians, James, one of the apostles included, and he just put James to the sword. He executed him seemingly out of nowhere. He realized that everyone was happy when he did that, and so he figured, well, why don't I do that again? And so he arrests Peter, and he plans to do the exact same thing. But that night, if you were here with us last week, we looked at this. Actually, 
God sends an angel to rescue Peter, wakes him up in the middle of the night and, and releases him out of his chains and he walks just straight out the prison, goes and finds the church. They can't even believe he's there. He tells them, explains what God had done for him, how he had rescued him, and then he goes off to another place. Right? He goes into hiding. He can't just stick around there and so he moves on. And really, this morning, we are picking up the story the next morning, right? The next day after Peter had escaped is where we're going to pick up. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to follow along with me, and uh, let me invite all of us uh, to stand as we read God's Word. Would you stand with me? Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 18, God's Word says this. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. You know, this is just one of those passages that just really makes you hungry for Thanksgiving dinner, doesn't it? Oof, all right, maybe not. But ironically, or maybe not ironically, but it, it should actually be a passage that does make us thankful. Right, it's a passage where we see a little bit of, of God's you know, snapshot into you know, what we might call justice, right? The bad guy gets it in the end. But it's really easy to approach a text like this and kind of wring our hands and go, yeah, yeah, he finally got what he deserved, right? Good on, good on him, let's just celebrate that. But if that's actually the approach that we come to with this text, I think we're going to run into two major problems. One, it's not always what we see happening around us. Sometimes it really feels like the wrong people get away, that, that the bad guys don't get what they deserve, And so we have a problem there. And the second problem is if we are wringing our hands with glee over this end, actually we're we're in some danger of ending up in the same way. The call of this text is not to be gloating over others, but actually to humble ourselves before God. When we see God's justice, it should make us humble, not arrogant. All right, but that's, that's kind of jumping ahead a ways. So, so let's kind of back up. Let's look at our passage here together, understand what's going on. And I want us to start off simply by asking the question I think the church would have been asking. Where is justice? What is going on here? Right, you've got to put yourself a little bit in the shoes of the church at the time, Right? James has just been put to death. He's one of the apostles, one of the closest apostles to Jesus. And seemingly, in, we get half a sentence to describe Luke's death, or not Luke's, James's death. That's it. Suddenly he's gone and Peter is in prison. And, and sure, you know, God, God actually rescues Peter, but there is violent hands laid on the church. People were beaten, abused, thrown in jail. 
Peter narrowly escapes the same fate. And in fact, we're going to see even more is going to happen. Verse 18 picks up our story. It says, when day came, there was no little disturbance over the, among the soldiers over what happened. Not really that surprising. Someone just walked out of jail. No one has any idea how that happened. Everyone is talking about that. Verse 19 says, after Herod searched for him and could not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered they be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time. So they can't find Peter, and so Herod just grabs the guards and says, well, you're all being put to death. Right, now this was unfortunately not terribly uncommon in the Roman Empire. This is what would happen if you let a prisoner escape, you paid for it with your life. If you remember the story of, of Paul and the Philippian jailer, we see this very same thing almost play out again. The Philippian jailer is about to take his own life because he knows he's going to lose it if everyone had escaped. Paul saves him in that moment. But Herod here just seems to order the death of these soldiers, even though they didn't actually let Peter escape. They had been doing their job. Nonetheless, Herod is going to put people to death, right? Herod is the, the definition of a tyrant, Right? Most of the kings at this time, Herod himself included, got his position by murdering all the competition. And so this is not even a blink on the scale for him. This is normal proceedings. Putting lots of people to death is exactly how he worked. And then the last little line that we get in this text. Herod goes from Judea down to Caesarea. Caesarea is a, is a port town. It's beautiful. It's on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. Herod goes on vacation, puts a bunch of people to death, and then goes to his summer home down by the ocean. And you've got to be wondering, if you are the church here, what is going on? Isn't God going to be doing something? See, what Luke doesn't make explicit, but we can know from other historical documents, is that in between verses 19 and 20 is at least a year. There's at least a year where the church is just sitting and going, what is happening here? What exactly is going on? Doesn't God care about everything that go is going on? Peter is running for his life and Herod is relaxing. Where is the justice in all of that? And, and here's the thing, I mean, do we not see that in our own day all the time? Afghanistan right now is under Taliban control. They have murdered many people, Christians included. Doesn't God care? It seems like they're just getting away with it. North Korea has had a lineage of dictators, all who have oppressed Christianity and many people, and they seem to continue on. China, the secret police, can come into your home at any moment and take you away. Is there any justice? Does God actually care? We see it on a global scale. We see it on a personal one. People abuse, harm others, and they just seem to get away with it. People in our own lives betray, hurt us, hurl insults, cause all kinds of harm, and it seems like nothing ever gets done. We see this kind of crying out all throughout the Bible. Psalm 94 says, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt they pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. 
right? It's an honest cry to God because of the evil they have seen. The prophet Habakkuk does the same. He laments that his eyes have seen so much evil, right? Elijah asks to die because of the horrors he sees around him all the time. Where is justice? It's what the church is crying out at this moment. And even before we we move on, we begin to see some of the answers God gives because he does give them. Just stop and simply say, these are prayers we ought to give to God. God is not afraid of tough prayers. We can actually go to God and pray and cry out to him. See, so often when we hit, we face difficulty, our, our natural reaction is to talk to friends, family. It's a good reaction. Sometimes we have bad reactions. We go into all kinds of of vices to try and numb pain, alcohol, pornography, drugs, whatever it is. And we try and, you know, get rid of it. And so, so few of the time is our reaction to go to God, the one who actually can provide comfort in these times. If we miss this out, we're missing part of how God instructs us to pray, to cry out to him. Because the truth is, God is doing something about it. In fact, that's exactly what we end up seeing here. Is God doing anything? Yes. Right? God isn't just letting things go. And in fact, Luke places this story here about Herod very uh, particularly to help us remember God is the judge. God is going to act. So let's see what he does. Verse 20. It says, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So here's kind of the setup for what is going to all happen, right? Herod was the ruler over Judea, but Tyre and Sidon, they were separate city-states. They ruled, they governed themselves. And at some point, they had made Herod angry. We're not told exactly what they do. We don't know. But they, they ticked him off. And so instead of Herod going and saying, you know, just, just crush them with military, he says, I don't even need to do that. I don't have to, I don't have to lay my hands on them. We're just not going to sell them any food. And suddenly they're realizing, Tyre and Sidon, oh, actually, we don't have enough for ourselves. We need to buy from Herod. Otherwise, we are starving. Right? This is the definition of biting the hand that feeds you. Right? They, they didn't quite learn that lesson. And so now they are, they are groveling before Herod. Right? They have to come to him and they have to make peace because people are going to be dying. And so they come in, verse 21 says, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Right? He gets to deliver a speech in front of people who are trying to flatter him. Right? This whole crowd is all there to just flatter and, and schmooze and butter Herod up. And he is loving it. Right? There, is a, there is a historian, Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He actually records this same event happening. Right? They're, they're parallel accounts with, with Luke. And he tells us actually that when Herod showed up, he came and his robes were... were Uh, laced with silver. He took silver thread and weaved it into his clothes and he timed his arrival into the throne room so that the sun would be hitting him. So he came out and he is 
sparkling. I mean, this is a guy who is at the height of his arrogance, right? He wants to come out and literally sparkle in front of everyone and deliver this grand speech. And Luke records everyone is crying out that he is, you know, something of a god. Josephus says the same thing. He, uh, to quote him, he says, They invoked him as a god. Be gracious to us, they cried. And hitherto we have reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. I'm guessing that was more flattering in the original language, but the result is they're buttering him up. Right? They're, they're claiming him to be something more than just a man. And here is where both Luke and Josephus agree exactly. It's in, in that moment that he is struck down. Luke tells us, verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. As Herod is reveling in all of this glory, in that moment, God strikes him down. Josephus tells us that as he is standing there, suddenly he is stricken with pain in his bowels, so much so that he can't even walk out of the throne room. He has to have people carry him out, and he died five days later. In fact, Luke's wording there was actually probably pretty specific. He was eaten by worms, and then he died. Right, people aren't exactly sure how this happened. Burst appendix, parasites, something like that. But Luke does tell us why. It happened because he did not give God the glory. Herod, in the height of his pride and his arrogance, does not see anyone greater than himself to be worshipped, but receives all of it on himself. But God does not share his glory all throughout the Bible, God is very clear about this. Even when he gives the Ten Commandments, the first two are do not worship other gods and do not worship idols. God doesn't share his worship or his glory with anyone. Exodus 34, God says, I am a jealous God and you will not worship other gods besides me. God is to be glorified above all because he is alone worthy of all our praise. Herod is not worthy of the praise he is receiving. He is no God, and so God sends an angel to strike him down. Very interesting, in the exact same way that he rescues Peter with an angel of the Lord, he judges Herod. And in fact, Luke is pointing this out for us. He places these two stories side by side in order to show us, actually, this is God's judgment for Herod's sins. Herod had killed with impunity. He had put to death one of the apostles of Jesus and tried to kill another, tried to harm the church. Do not harm the bride of Christ and think there are no repercussions. God holds him accountable for what he had done. Remember, God is the judge. He doesn't let Herod get away with it. And I think this is perhaps one of the first things we just need to remember. So often when we think, well, people get away with the bad things that they're doing, it's because we're not seeing the end of the story. Right? The Bible gives us some moments to see how God is uh, completing, how God is actually holding people accountable. But in our own lives, we so often only see a small snapshot we think people get away with it not realizing actually God is going to hold everyone accountable. You might ask, well, okay, but if that's the case, 
If God is going to hold people accountable, if God is going to judge, why did he wait? Why does he wait a full year before he does anything and seemingly let Herod continue to get away with it? The Bible gives us two reasons why God sometimes waits. There's certainly more, but, but two big ones. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, God is patient with us so that we would actually have time to repent. Perhaps does God actually give Herod a time to repent, to turn away from his sins so that he would not uh, be judged? Does God give him a chance to ask for forgiveness? And before we say, well, God shouldn't. He's a horrific dictator. There's no way God should give him that chance. Before we say that, we have to realize that's the same chance God has given us. It's the same patience he has shown with each and every one of us. The only reason any of us are here today is because God has been patient with us when we have sinned. It's because God has been gracious so often we want God to be swift and exacting in his justice, but if he were to be so, we would find ourselves to be overwhelmed in his judgment. We're so grateful that God allows us an opportunity to turn to Jesus, to be forgiven for our sins. That is a thing to be grateful and to praise God. He is patient with those who do not deserve it, and that includes us. We have not deserved God's patience or his mercy, and yet he has given it. Thank you, Lord, that you are patient with sinners. You might say, okay, sure, but surely God already knows. Herod isn't going to repent. God already knows what's going to happen, so why does he wait? Here's the second reason the Bible gives us. Again, from the book of Romans, Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Here is perhaps what we see more clearly in Herod. God was patient in his judgment of Herod in order that his own power would be more clearly seen. God allowed Herod to rise in power, stature, esteem in the eyes of others for the purpose of actually bringing him down. God waited until Herod was at the height of his power and arrogance before revealing how utterly simple it was to remove him. God's power isn't challenged by any human ruler or authority. God is sovereign over all. He is the judge over all the universe, and his authority is far beyond what any person is able to muster. And therefore, God is patient with Herod so that his power would be more fully shown to those around him. It was abundantly clear to all what had happened to Herod. And so to answer the question, where is God's justice? Is he doing anything? Does he care? The answer is yes, he does care. Yes, he is doing something. God is patient in his judgment to give us a chance to repent and sometimes to demonstrate his power. And I think knowing that, first of all, 
if we remember that God is the judge, it first of all should make us very, very nervous about any hidden sin in our own lives. See, here's the truth. There's no such thing as hidden sin. God is fully aware of all of our sin. God is crystal clear on all that we have done. If the only reason we have not faced judgment for our hidden sin is that God is being patient with us. And so we need to look at that and say, is that because God is waiting for me to repent or, or will I be the object of his judgment? Hear me, you, you don't need to wonder about which it will be. Use in this very moment a time to repent and turn back to him. Confess your sins before God because he will forgive. Jesus died on the cross so that our sins would be forgiven. He took the judgment in our place that we would be saved that all of our sins would be paid for in full. God has been patient today to give us a chance to repent. So when we remember God is the judge, let us be quick to repent. Let us be quick to go to him and to plead our case, to go and trust in the name of Jesus Christ because he will forgive us. We are to be quick to repent and quick to show grace to others. See, so often we, when people have hurt us, our, our, we tend to think and, and our attitude is, well, I'll get them back. I'll harbor some sort of hurt and I'm just waiting for the day when, when they will get what is coming to them. When we remember that God is the judge, it actually changes how we view them. We respond not out of anger, frustration, or an urge to avenge ourselves, but actually to trust that God is in control. Paul again writes in the book of Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So often what I see when, when, when injustice comes out is the desire for us to hold everyone accountable. To assume that if I don't hold someone accountable for the wrong things they have done, no one will. The problem with that line of thinking is one, we aren't innocent. Two, we don't know everything. And three, that's God's job. Instead, actually what we're called to do is to overwhelm evil with good. That when we are insulted, we respond with encouragement. When we're taken advantage of, we respond with generosity. We overcome the evil with good. Now, I'm sure some of you are already thinking of, well, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? What about this one? And we can come up with all kinds of counterexamples, times when we're not supposed to do this, times when Paul even stood up for his rights. This verse isn't telling us to be a punching bag. It's telling us we are not to respond in kind. But here's my challenge. If the first thought is how this shouldn't apply to me, we have the wrong attitude. Our disposition should be one of showing grace to others. 
There are times where we have to stick up for ourselves, yes, but our attitude is to be one of overwhelming grace. Our first instinct is to respond with mercy, not to try and exact our version of justice. God is the judge. We can leave it in his hands. It means we are freed to be overwhelmingly gracious. I don't need to make sure everyone gets exactly what they deserve. I didn't get what I deserved. I didn't get what I exactly deserved. God showed me mercy when I didn't deserve it. And so can I not then share that mercy with others? That is the call of the Christian life. When we recognize that God is the judge, we can leave it in his hands and we can respond with grace and mercy. I trust God can settle all the balances I can't. That's in his hands. I don't need to do it. When we remember that God is the judge, it should make us quick to repent and quick to show grace. Finally, it should make us quick to humble ourselves. I said at the beginning, if we walk away from the story of Herod and we're wringing our hands with glee saying, yeah, I'm so glad he got what he deserved, we're we're missing the point and we are. Luke is very clear about why Herod receives this judgment. Verse 23, because he did not give God the glory. Here's the reason why Herod ultimately receives his judgment. He didn't glorify God. He did not humble himself. Herod is the picture of what it looks like to be proud and arrogant. And if there's anything we are to learn from him, it is not only the danger of pride, but the importance of humility. Humility is giving God the glory, being more focused on God than ourselves. See, I think a lot of the times when we want to define pride, we define pride as this sort of, well, I think I'm great, therefore I'm proud. And therefore, if I think that I am nothing, if I think I'm terrible and scum, well, that's what humility looks like. Let me suggest both of those definitions are wrong. Humility is not thinking that we're terrible, and pride is not thinking that we're amazing. Pride is thinking about ourselves first. Humility is thinking about others first, about thinking about God first. You can be a very proud person and still have a very low opinion of yourself because all of your thoughts are consumed around you. In fact, that's exactly what Herod was doing. And when he was so consumed with himself, there was nothing, no glory whatsoever to give to God. Humility is placing God as the first place in your life instead of yourself. Peter writes in the book of 1 Peter, he says, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I love that he doesn't say that the exaltation is something wrong. It's rather how we go about it. The means to being exalted is not to put yourself first and to to show yourself as amazing, but rather to put God first in your life and allow him to exalt you. God will give grace to the humble. If you remember the parable Jesus tells about the two men who go into the temple to pray. One man enters in in a loud voice. He's praying about how how good he is and he's thanking God that he's not like these other sinful people over here. 
And the other man is in the corner quietly praying to himself, God, have mercy on me. Jesus ends that parable and he says, he says, I tell you, this man, the second, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The man who humbled himself before God found he was justified. He was made right with God. He was declared righteous at God's judgment seat. In fact, is that not exactly what we're seeing in our passage? The humble are exalted and the proud are humbled. Look back with me at verse 24. It's a key verse in this passage. Verse 24 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Luke is setting up a very clear, stark contrast between Herod, the proud and arrogant, who is humbled to nothing, and the lowly church who is being exalted, increasing and multiplying all the more. Right? The church is not actually in trouble. God is going to exalt those who place him first. The humble are brought down and, or sorry, <laughs> other way, the proud are brought down and the humble are exalted. The church continues to grow and expand. In fact, this is the message we see all throughout the book of Acts. All of this opposition comes to stop the church, that comes to destroy it, and yet God defends his church and lifts her up again and again and again. The gospel of Jesus isn't stopped by all of these things. God is in control over all of them. Herod didn't stop the church, and God was not sitting idly by. But he was increasing and exalting his word more and more. It's the clear contrast between what happens to the proud and what happens to the humble. And so I, I think the question we, we have to ask, will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself? Will you place God as first in your life? Will you give him all the glory? Thank him for all the things that he has given to us. Today's Thanksgiving. We ought to be a people who are thankful every single day of the year because of what God has done. He has given us so much. It's not that we have earned it. We haven't earned God's patience with us. We haven't earned God's mercy with us. Yet God has lavished all these things. Let us put him first in our lives. When we cry out for God's justice, let us remember God is the judge. And so we ought to be quick to repent, quick to show grace, and quick to humble ourselves. Let us put him first and glorify God for all that he has done. Would you pray with me? Father, we are, we are so grateful for your patience with us. Lord, this morning we confess that, that we have not always been right before you, that we have sinned, that we have done what we should not have done, that we have ignored what we should have rightfully done. Father, I ask, would you forgive us of our sins? Father, would we turn and would we trust in you more and more? Father, for the times where we have put ourselves first, Lord, I pray, forgive us. Call us again to repentance. Allow us to put you first, to glorify you in all that we do. Father, I pray 
as we remember the, the fact that you are the one who will be the judge, let us rest trusting in you and let us repent quickly. Let us show more grace and let us humbly walk before you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.